Hey everybody, how are you doing? We're back again on another Monday evening recording live this episode of Boozy's Legal Funhouse, an educational, informational, and hopefully entertaining podcast about all things legal that have popped in my little brain. I'm your host, the Boozy Badger, Boozy Barrister. Either one's fine. And tonight we're going to talk about the basic concepts of premises liability and the ability to electrocute teenagers. But before we get into that, as always, I do need to read off the names of our $5 level and above producer supporters over at Patreon.com, Lawyers and Liquor. If you're listening to this and you want to be one of those supporters, you can go to Patreon.com, Lawyers and Liquor, and subscribe for $5 or more a month. If that said, special thanks out there to Jeremy the Head Fox and Wolf in a Barrel, Dragor, Jack of All Korgs, Nikolai, Tezcat, Magic Jag, Waylon DeRoche, Beaten, Dozer the Trash Panda, Eddie the Weather Fox, Mark Beckwar, Mama T, Uncle Kage, Ask Jeeves, Lisa Lupe, Mark Phaedrus, Netherlinks, Pandemonium Hawk, Petroff Neutrino, Scott Skunk, Terrence, Buddy Good Boy, CC Otter, Chroma Hydra, David Hunter, Ed B. Cali, Evie Solis, Feck, Ghost Scope, Grace Jane Gollinger, Ian Delahorn, Jason Knight, Just Dave, Just James, Calic, Coma Blood Paul, Mark Whipple, Michael Blocker, Sean Rabbit, The Dragon Show, Wheelie, and Zeros the Lion. I always love reading off the names of our producer-level Patreon supporters because this is a podcast that is ostensibly serious in nature, and I like to think someone out there is sitting in their car on their way to the office listening to this episode and going, did that motherfucker just say CC the Otter? <laughs> so, this week I have uh, back to the the general principles of law after a few weeks of talking about cases. We're going to talk about premises liability, but before we do that, as we do with every episode, it is time to talk about a little bit of legal news. The three legal news stories I have located for you this week to talk about and go over. Up first, we have in Pennsylvania the acceptance of the U.S. Supreme Court to hear a cheerleader's case about using profanity on social media. A student and cheerleader at the Mahanoy Area School District was banished from the cheerleading squad at her school after going on a profanity-laden tirade on social media. Brandy Levy, who made a Snapchat post away from school and on a weekend is at the center of a new Supreme Court case testing the limits of the constitutional rights of students to free speech. Now, we've talked about this in general in the past and the tinker standard and all of these things, but the takeaway is that Supreme Court precedent has regularly held that while students do not surrender their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate, that those constitutional rights are, of course, subject to some limitations. And the schoolhouse gate, as other cases have extended it, is not simply the physical confines of the school, but can extend to anything that touches or is reasonably directed to come into the school, making those students subject to punishment because, as we all know, those schools are government bodies in the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, says the government cannot punish you for speech generally. The question coming before the Supreme Court now is prior to this. In the past, there have been cases holding that the schoolhouse gate is not simply a physical entity. It is not the boundaries of the school that students can be held responsible for conduct and speech that takes place off of school grounds if it so touches on or affects the operation of the school. In this case, Miss Levy was posting on a weekend away from school from her home, but on something that concerned things going on at the school, namely the cheerleading squad. Miss Levy in 2017 made a post two days after the cheerleading tryouts were held. She had been prior to that a junior varsity cheerleader and was infuriated at the concept of not being 
on the varsity squad. She posted a picture of her friend and herself holding up their middle fingers to the camera and adding a caption using a same curse word four times to display her pleasure with cheerleading, softball, school, and everything. I think we can all guess what that curse word, that four-letter curse word was. She was at the age of 14 and now as an 18-year-old student is getting ready to go in front of the U.S. Supreme Court to determine whether or not the school punishing her for that speech has a legitimate purpose that is further served and could potentially redefine what we consider to be the schoolhouse gate for the purposes of a First Amendment claim brought by a punished student. Now, this isn't the Coal Region's first case. There was Snyder X. Rel v. Blue Mountain School District, a Third Circuit case that touched on similar circumstances that I became very familiar with uh, when I was in law school. And in that case, some students have actually made a fake MySpace profile of their principal, alleging that he did horrible things while off school grounds, not using school equipment. Uh, the Third Circuit in that case said, nope, the schoolhouse grounds do not go that far. Uh, so it will be an interesting case to watch. It will be an interesting case to follow on this to see whether or not we are going to extend the schoolhouse grounds and what speech public school students can be punished for further. The Supreme Court has taken that case up. I suggest we all follow it. Moving on to our next piece of legal news for the night. This comes, as many do, from the ABA Journal. And I always talk about lawyers behaving badly on here. It's, it's a common thread. Lawyers behaving badly. It's a wonderful thing. You people love to hear about the misery of folks in the legal profession who have violated their oaths. But you know what lawyers like to hear about? You know what gets us all giddy and gearing up to go? Well... It's judges behaving badly. And this report from the ABA Journal dated April 20th, 2021. Judge investigated after he reportedly testifies in divorce deposition about burying $100,000 in his backyard. Nashville, Tennessee Judge Kelvin Jones in June of 2020 was deposed in relation to his divorce about his assets and stated that he buried about $100,000 in his backyard to conceal it from the state and creditors. Now, these deposition records were actually sealed by the court, and that means you cannot publicly access them. So how do we know about this? We know about this because the Tennessean newspaper had placed a request and obtained the records from the deposition prior to them being sealed. Now, Jones's uh, actions did not cease there. In the same deposition, he allegedly admitted to accessing his wife's emails uh, and impersonating someone he thought she was having an affair with in order to get an itemized hotel receipt. Uh, her attorney has alleged that some of the emails were communications with her attorney, which gave him access to attorney-client privileged information. Now, uh, the, uh, the, the special prosecutor was actually uh, assigned to this after another attorney, Brian Minokian, complained about, to, about the judge to the Tennessee Board of Judicial Conduct and to the Nashville District Attorney. Uh, it was one of several complaints that he has filed about judges, also alleging that a disciplinary counsel's tweet showed him to be a proud anti-Muslim bigot. 
that member of the disciplinary board uh, who worked at that point for the disciplinary board was fired after those allegations were made and the tweets were publicized. But interestingly enough, from one lawyer's vendetta has sparred this uh, deposition transcript, which I hope they unseal it. I would love to see it, where a judge allegedly admitted to concealing from his creditors and tax authorities $100,000 by burying it in his backyard. I am assuming he has dug it up by now and is paying attorney's fees with it. And because no good thing lasts forever. We can't, we can't just have the schadenfreude at judges without going after a lawyer as well here on the Legal Funhouse. From the ABA Journal, again, April 20th. After a name partner of a law firm goes missing, the lawyers in the firm have alleged they are not receiving paychecks and clients are alleging that millions of dollars have gone missing from their trust accounts. Partner Mitchell Kossoff at the Kossoff Law Firm uh, is facing several lawsuits from clients who have alleged that he has stolen millions of dollars from escrow funds and many of the attorneys at his New York City real estate firm have resigned after they have not been paid. Lawyers at the firm have said that they have not heard from Kossoff since the beginning of April and have not been receiving Paychecks. This is after the filing of an involuntary bankruptcy petition against the firm by the credits that alleges the firm misappropriated, which is fancy words for stole, $8 million of client escrow funds. The firm and Mitchell Kossoff are currently under investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. A judge has stated that they will grant an injunction barring Kossoff from accessing any of the three bank accounts that he has. Kossoff has disappeared. No one has been in contact with him, but comfortably for the court. His attorney, who has been hired specifically to defend him solely should there be any criminal law consequences of his conduct, has stated his client has not fled and is still subject to the jurisdiction of the court. Once again, lawyers behaving badly, we can't get away from them. Now, before we go into tonight's topic, I want to be very clear in giving you something I have to give every time, and that is a disclaimer. That's right, a big, beautiful, sexy disclaimer. This is a reminder that Boozy's Legal Funhouse is an educational, informational, and hopefully entertaining discussion of general legal principles as they exist. It is in no way the giving of legal advice. I am an attorney, but unless you have contacted me through normal channels, come into my office and met with me, spoken to me at length about your case, I have agreed to represent you. You have signed an engagement letter and paid me a retainer fee of my choosing. Do not just PayPal me a buck. I am not your lawyer. There is no attorney-client privilege or attorney-client relationship that arises from your presence in tonight's discussion. The principles we are going to be speaking about are very general legal principles, and they will vary widely from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. As always, if you need legal representation or advice regarding any of these areas, you need to go to an attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction, meet with them, and ask them these questions. All right? Do not say a fat guy who acts like a cartoon badger on the internet told me so it will not hold up in court with all of that out of the way let's go to tonight's topic tonight's topic is very simply electrifying teenagers that's right we all want to do it we all talk about doing it few of us have 
And when we talk about electrifying teenagers, what we are actually talking about tonight is the duty of care that is owed by a landowner to trespassers on their property. You see, I hear you screaming from your homes, your cars, your workspaces. Boozy! What is a duty of care? It is a very careful defecation. You must wipe in certain manners. It is, it, it is a legal term that is mostly applicable to tort law. And tort law is basically personal injury law. It is not the law regarding pastries. That is tart law. The duty of care, while hilariously containing the word duty, is actually a legal obligation that is imposed on an individual or an entity that requires them to conduct themselves in a manner, a standard of reasonable care that prevents them from contributing to the harm of some other person. And when you breach the duty of care that is violating it, you have met one of the major elements of holding someone responsible for a negligence action at tort law, an action sounding in tort. So let's talk very briefly about the elements of a tort claim for negligence. There's four of them, and they must be proven in order to sustain a negligence claim in the court. The first is the existence of a duty of care. You have a responsibility to act this way or not act in this way in order to prevent harm. You have breached that duty of care. You did not act in this reasonable way and harm occurred. Someone was injured, in this case the plaintiff. Jerry got electrified. And the injury was the result of your breach. Jerry got electrified because you did not take proper precautions. We call these four elements as attorneys. The duty, breach, injury, and causation. And all four must be met. So how is a duty of care established? Well, first, it is implied by law. We look first to what the actor, the person who has the duty, is doing or their relative position to the third party. For example, if you're driving a car, you have a duty of care based on the driving of that car, and it is implied in law. Next, we look to what the foreseeable harm is that could result to other people if you do whatever it is you're doing incorrectly. For example, if you fail to pay attention to the road and you rear-end the vehicle in front of you, that is a foreseeable risk of failing to carefully operate a vehicle. Finally, we look at what a reasonable person who is similarly situated would need to do to avoid or minimize the foreseeable harm. A reasonable person, by the way, in this case, is a mythical standard. It is what would the great mass of humanity in that situation consider to be the standard of care they must exercise to, present, to prevent harm based on what that same person would foresee. That sets the standard of reasonable care that establishes the duty. And a duty of care, I should mention, is also established at some points by law. By law, you will have a duty of care imposed upon you when you're undertaking certain activities. So, how is a duty of care breached? Well, generally, a duty of care is breached when the party that owes the duty fails to act in a manner consistent with the reasonable standard of care that is imposed by it and an injury results therefrom. There's those four elements again. Duty, breach, injury, causation. Note, very importantly though, the duty 
only extends to foreseeable harm and will not apply to any possible harm. In essence, shit happens actually can be a defense to a tort action. A duty of care isn't unlimited. It's not intended to look at every possible harm that could ever result from you doing something. It only relates to harm that the actor, the person doing the thing, could have reasonably foreseen as resulting from it. If someone acts completely reasonably in a manner that addresses all of the reasonably foreseeable harm that could result, it doesn't matter if an injury ends up occurring anyhow. Because they have acted in a manner addressing the reasonably foreseeable harm, they're not negligent because they haven't breached the duty of care, and therefore they're not liable for the injury. And a person has no obligation to go out there and determine what any possible harm could be. Only that which would be reasonably expected to occur. Extreme circumstances or occurrences will relieve the actor of civil liability because they have not breached a foreseeable duty of care. Harm that no reasonable person would expect to result from action or inaction is not within the duty of care. However, you know how I said a moment ago that there are certain duties and, and levels of duty of care, really, that are imposed specifically by law. Well, it's negligent to own land. A duty of care arises under law because of some activity you are undertaking or some event that you're holding or by your relationship to the person taking the action. But it is also assigned by law in specific situations, such as when you are a landowner or the tenant in property that you hold via a valid lease. The law assigns different levels of duty of care based on who is accessing your land, how they are accessing it, why they are accessing it, and your relationship to them. But as a landowner, or cannot stress this enough, as a tenant with a valid right to take under a lease, you always owe some duty of care to the people on your land. This is, in general, referred to as premises liability law and is basically negligence law with a fancy name. Now, I said there's differing levels of duty that are owed, and it all depends on who, how, when, why somebody is on your land. The highest duty of care out there is owed to people that we call invitees. An invitee at law is somebody who is invited onto your premises, onto your land, for the mutual advantage of both the landowner and the person who is entering the property. Generally, these are broken down into two classes, business invitees and public invitees. A business invitee are people who are there to do business with the property owner or tenant, such as a customer at a store or a plumber making a service call to your house. A public invitee is a person who is on the land for a purpose that it is held open to the general public for, such as, say, a landowner who opens their gardens for public strolling with no fee. That could be a public invitee. And the duties that you owe to an invitee are indeed, as a landowner, the highest duties you owe to anyone on your land. You owe a duty of maintenance. A property owner or a tenant with an obligation to do so must maintain the property in a condition that it is safe and reasonable for an invitee. 
You have a duty to protect and warn invitees. Where there is some condition on your land that is open and obvious, like a giant fucking pit lined with spikes, a landowner must warn against that danger and take all possible steps to protect an invitee against injury. And, as to invitees, a landowner has a duty to inspect and repair. Generally, generally speaking, a landowner or tenant of a property has a duty to inspect that property in a manner that would be reasonably sufficient to identify dangers and take action to remedy them. I'll note, though, this is not unlimited and is typically limited to only what would be reasonably undertaken or reasonably discovered. So you don't have to do like a full essay to determine whether or not a sinkhole is suddenly going to open up under somebody, but you should probably have somebody come out and look at your property to make sure there are no existing sinkholes. And this is important. These are the duties owed to invitees, the highest level of duty of care owed by a landowner to someone who's entering their land. But even though it's a very high level of a duty to care, there are exceptions to it. First, if somebody's acting outside of the scope of the invitation onto the land. If an invitee comes onto your land for one purpose and they exceed that purpose, they exceed the scope of what is necessary in terms of accessing the land, they are no longer entitled to invitee levels of protection. For example, if you have a business, you are inviting the public into your business to shop, right? You have a retail store, you're inviting them into those general areas. What you are not inviting them to do is go back in your storeroom. If a member of the public enters your shop, and then goes back into your storeroom where boxes from an unwarned danger fall upon them and crush their legs, that's not your issue. The duty of care given to them as an invitee is limited to the scope of why you invited them onto the premises in this situation to shop in the common area of the store. The back area, the private room, isn't subject to this heightened duty of care because they were not invitees back there. You can also have an exception where somebody assumes the risk. Now, you heard me earlier say that you have a duty to protect and warn against obvious dangers. And that is true. You should be posting signs. You should be mitigating that. However, a person, just because they're invited onto your property, is not relieved of all common sense. If a danger is so obvious that a person would be expected to know about it and protect against it, and they act otherwise, they are held to have assumed the risk of injury for their actions. Meaning that while you may have had a duty of care, they have acted in a manner that shows they don't care about their own safety enough. So they have assumed that risk, thus relieving you from liability. And finally, they're not an invitee. Invitee is a specific class of people at law in relation to a landowner's duty of care. And if someone falls outside the scope of it, even arguably, even if you think they should fall inside of it, you make the argument that they are not owed the heightened duty of care. But we'll talk more about that in just a second. There is, between an invitee and the lowest level, a kind of a middle class of duty, and that is licensees. At law, a licensee is someone that you allow to be on your property, even though there is no benefit they are conferring to you. For example, letting someone hunt on your property makes them a licensee. 
Generally, we would sort of be inclined to refer to these people as visitors. They are people who, while you are not benefiting from their presence, are on your property with your knowledge and with your permission. What duties do we owe to a licensee? Well, generally, you only owe them really one. You owe them the duty to warn. Generally, the only duty owed to a licensee is the duty to warn them of any unsafe conditions on the property. This is typically limited to dangers that you as the landowner or tenant are aware of. And you do not have a duty to actually inspect the property for these conditions. Nor is there really any duty to repair them so long as you make the licensee aware that they exist. And I said there's only one, but there's really two. Because there is one general duty that applies to all levels of people on your land, and that is not it has the duty not to harm or cause harm. In general, no matter what level somebody is at, a property owner has a duty not to take acts that cause harm to visitors or to create conditions intended to do so. So here's a question for you. Is Uncle Bob an invitee or a licensee? Let's say you invite Uncle Bob over for dinner. And you tell him before he comes over, when you're coming up to the house, watch that first step. It's uneven. And before now, Uncle Bob comes over, and maybe he's ranting about how Trump uh, had the election stolen from who knows, but he's not paying attention. He does not watch that first step, which is a slanted concrete step uh, with a broken end. He falls off and he sues you. Will Uncle Bob win? And it all goes back to the question, is he an invitee or a licensee? You invited him onto the property. So maybe you're thinking, well, of course, invitees are owed not only a duty of warning, but a duty of maintenance. We have to preserve the property if we're inviting them onto it so that there's no dangers like that step, right? But you'd be wrong, because Bob does not win. Uncle Bob, despite having been invited over, is a social guest, and the law does not assign a benefit to social visits made to the landowner. As such, he was not an invitee, which would have been something that was of a material benefit to the landowner, such as fixing the sink. But a licensee, he is a visitor. He is somebody you are allowing onto your property with no tangible benefit to you. And the sole duty owed to you, owed to Uncle Bob by you, was the duty to warn him of the condition which you did. But the classification and duties owed to an invitee are triggered by a benefit, typically pecuniary, so, let's change it up. Say you invite Uncle Bob over for dinner before which he has agreed to fix your sink. Does this change the analysis? Maybe if the primary reason that Uncle Bob is coming over is to fix your sink and not for the licensee purpose of having dinner, Uncle Bob may be considered an invitee and therefore owed a higher duty of care, in which case you would be liable under this situation. Can you see now how we classify the people coming onto the property really does depend at law? Because it all goes back to those four elements, duty, breach, injury, causation. And if Uncle Bob is an invitee, it doesn't matter that you warned him. You actually had to stop him from being hurt. You had to maintain that property. But if he's a licensee, telling him, watch that step is probably enough. 
And that brings us to our last cast of people on your land. Those dirty, dirty trespassers. And what duty do you owe a dirty, dirty trespasser? Almost none. Now, a trespasser at law is a person or persons who are on property that, without the permission of the person who is lawfully seized of the same, a really fancy way to just say the landowner or the tenant in possession with the ability to control. This ranges from anything to kids walking across your land all the way up to someone breaking into your house. And as I intimated, the duties owed to a trespasser more or less don't exist. Generally, you have no duty of care related to a trespasser. The only duty of care that you owe to a trespasser on your land who is there without your permission, generally, is the duty not to willfully or wantonly cause harm to them. This means you can't create traps for trespassers. No Home Alone-style antics, no spike pits, no drop-deads, no snares, no bear traps. You cannot cripple those damn kids to make them stay off your lawn. And willful or wanton is something that we actually have to talk about a little bit. Because there's a difference between those two things, and they tend to get lumped in together. In a Pennsylvania case, Evans v. Philadelphia Transportation, what is now known as SEPTA, they dug into the facts of what is willful versus what is wanted. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court defined it and said courts often use those interchangeably, and they shouldn't. In Evans, to give you a little bit of background, a gentleman was at a subway station in Philadelphia. For some reason, somehow, he fell on the tracks. This was back in the 1950s. While on the tracks, a train began to come into the station. The train driver testified that he saw something on the tracks, but did not see a person on the tracks. It maintained speed. They struck Evans, and Evans died. His estate brought the action. Initially, they said, Evans was trespassing on the track. While he had permission to be in the station, he didn't have permission to be on the track. So the standard that we apply is the trespasser standard. So, the duty of care owed to him was not that owed by an invitee, somebody who is on the platform and boarding these trains in this properly, legally, to provide a business benefit to the Philadelphia Transportation Authority, but rather that of a trespasser who is now illegally on the tracks, unlawfully there without the permission of the owner. And by the way, that's how quickly it can change. It can change just that fast, just like the snapping of the fingers you couldn't hear from invitee to trespasser. So the question became, did the train engineer act willfully or wantingly? And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court came back and said, there is a difference between those two terms. We're overturning because we think the lower court said willful or wanton are kind of the same thing. And Pennsylvania Supreme Court clarified, willful is a person acts with the intent to bring about the harm. For example, a train operator sees a trespasser on the tracks and, seeing it as a person, doesn't slow down. They go full steam ahead and try to get 10 points. Wanton actions are if somebody acts intentionally in circumstances knowing it would cause great harm, or in circumstances where the risk was so obvious we should assume they knew that it could cause great harm. This example, a train operator sees a large object on the tracks that could be a person, but doesn't slow down. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court, in the Evans case, in overturning, said the operator did not act willfully, 
but by his own testimony when he saw something that could be human on the tracks and not reducing speed and stopping the train, he acted wantonly. And that breached the duty of care owed to a trespasser. Of course, even then, there are exceptions that apply a greater duty of care. For example, if you have a known trespasser or an anticipated trespasser, they are at least entitled to a duty to warn, to tell them about dangers on the property. And what is a known or anticipated trespasser? Well, that occurs when someone is entering onto your land without permission and is therefore a trespasser, but you are aware people are doing it or from the circumstances should anticipate people are doing it. Now, granted, it is not, I know Bob is trespassing on my land. It is, I know somebody is trespassing on my land or under the circumstances, I should expect somebody is trespassing on my land. And in that case, you would have a duty to warn them. You may have a duty to post a sign, danger, sinkhole, danger, bear trap, something to put them on notice that the danger exists to the extent you reasonably know about it. The classic example of this, a landowner is near a school is aware kids are cutting across his backyard or property on their way home from school and has become aware either by seeing them do it or by seeing a path they are wearing through the yard. Both of those would put them on notice that they have known or anticipated trespassers and of their need to warn people. In that case, the landowner must warn the trespassers about dangerous conditions that they know to exist. Further, we have the attractive nuisance. Now, I'm not talking about that really cute person who's problematic. No, I'm talking about a doctrine of law regarding trespassers that applies almost specifically to children. Attractive nuisance is based in the legal principle that the law should protect children more than adults. Generally, generally, Absent an attractive nuisance, the law does not treat dipshit adults different than it treats dipshit kids. Where a landowner, though, creates an artificial feature on their land, such as a swimming pool, they reasonably expect it to attract children as trespassers and must take some reasonable steps or be held liable. Those reasonable steps must be either to prevent children from accessing the land or protect children from being harmed by the nuisance. A failure to do either of those two things could lead to a finding of liability, regardless of the fact that the child is a trespasser. But the important takeaway from this is it only applies to children. An adult cannot say there is an attractive nuisance, therefore this person is liable for my harm when I skinny dipped in their pool at night and found out it was filled with piranhas because the law assumes that adults know better than to trespass. Let's look at an example of attractive nuisance. Little Timmy and the trampoline. So let's say little Timmy sees his neighbor has bought a brand new trampoline and he wants to play with that trampoline so badly. One night, little Timmy sneaks out and climbs onto the trampoline, which has no safety netting around it and for some reason is placed in the middle of a bed of large, sharp spikes. As little Timmy bounces up and down and up and down and up and down, he falls off the trampoline and impales himself. The neighbor had no fence on the property, and the trampoline could be easily accessed. Is the neighbor liable? 
Probably yes. Trampolines are actually a huge thing for attractive nuisance doctrine. And when they're not in something that bars access or makes it difficult for children to access them, like a fenced-in backyard, they are a very large grounds for attractive nuisance findings. Generally, the law will say if you have a trampoline visible to children and accessible to them, you should take measures to make sure no neighborhood kids are going to use that trampoline because you should expect kids will do that. But let's change the fact pattern a little bit. What if, what if, Instead of a trampoline in a bed of spikes, it's a tree surrounded by flamethrowers. He sneaks out to climb it, falls, and is burned to a crisp. Does that tall, climbable tree constitute an attractive nuisance legally? In many jurisdictions, if not all, no. Attractive nuisance doctrines only apply to man-made features that one would expect children to be attracted to. It would not apply to a tree, which is natural, or a stream on the property, or a brook. In that case, you did not attract little Timmy onto the property. The best way to think about it is an attractive nuisance is the tort liability version of a panel van filled with candy luring in all the neighborhood children. You have to make sure nothing bad's going to happen to them if you drive around with a panel van luring children in with candy. So the takeaways, generally, on-premises liability, duties of care. A landowner has a duty of care owed to people that come onto their land. The type of duty of care they own, the level of duty of care, is contingent on the nature of the person on the land. The highest level of duty of care is to invitees, being people that are on the property for the benefit of the owner. The lowest level of duty of care is to trespassers, who are owed no duty other than to not be willfully or wantonly harmed by the landowner. And attractive nuisances where children are involved overcome these presumed duties because we all love kids. So let's bring it all together to talk about this week's case. In 2002, Two 17-year-olds, Jeffrey Klein and Brett Birdwell, were out skateboarding and noticed freight cars sitting stopped on an easily accessible track. They climbed onto a parked freight car to see the lights of the city. On the way there, they passed a no trespassing sign and saw no railroad employees. They knew they did not have permission to be there or to climb on the train. They also saw power lines that ran directly to the train to keep it electrified and knew they were dangerous and could kill them. After some time looking at the city lights, Klein stood on a hatch lid and came in contact with one of the wires that powers the train. As a result, he suffered third-degree burns over 75% of his body. Birdwell, reaching out to help his electrified friend, then suffered burns over about 10 to 19% of his body. While Amtrak had been aware of 69 incidents of trespassing in that area, a resident of a nearby apartment said they'd never witnessed kids on the tracks in the four years they'd lived there, and emergency services had responded to no reports of kids on those tracks. Now, before we go further, everybody lives in this. Nobody died. Klein and Birdwell are both still alive. They both were hospitalized afterwards. Amtrak, in this case, had parked the freight cars there 
intending to leave them for several nights on what's called a tail track. There was no fence surrounding the tail track, and it was near a parking lot to an animal grooming shop. Amtrak and the freight line were aware of the danger posed by the power lines that were energizing the train and had decided to leave the power running to those lines. Amtrak was aware of a number of trespassing incidents in that area in the three years leading up to the incident and were aware that at least 33 of those incidents involved groups of juveniles, numbering 78 total. The area was further covered with graffiti, indicating the juveniles were indeed trespassing. So no Googling. What's the correct outcome with everything we've learned tonight? You would think that it would be a rather simple case that these people were obviously trespassers. They were two 17-year-olds. They saw a number of freight trains. They knew they weren't supposed to be on the railroad embankment, which is indeed property of Amtrak. So they were trespassers. They went up onto that. They climbed aboard the train. They stood on top of it to look out over the lights of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the beautiful lights of the bustling city of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And they were electrocuted, touching a line that they knew was dangerous. So you may think at 17 years old that that was sufficient. They were trespassers. Amtrak did not have a duty to warn them. They had not willfully or wantonly caused any harm. The argument made to the court by the lawyers for these two young men was that Amtrak was aware of the dangerous condition and should have expected from the fact that trespassers had been on the land before. They obviously knew people had come onto the land and from the graffiti and from the fact that 33 of the other incidents had told them juveniles were going to be on there, that they should have had a duty to warn about the obvious injuries. They further made the argument that the train cars being accessible were an attractive nuisance. Now, Amtrak said, well, wait a second. They admitted they knew that these were dangerous. Yeah, this was obvious. That that's throwing common sense out the window. And by the way, Attractive nuisance doctrine is intended to prevent children from being harmed. These two dipshits were 17 years old. You know, come on. That doesn't apply. And how do you think the court held? Well, the court and the jury held that Amtrak was liable. They said that Amtrak, knowing people were trespassing on the property, knowing that some of those people were children, knowing the danger of leaving those cars electrified, leaving them there for several days in an accessible area, and knowing specifically that people had trespassed on that piece of track, created known and apparent trespassers. So they were at least entitled to a duty to warn of the danger. And more than that, the court rejecting the argument that a 17-year-old is no longer a child, pointed out that in Pennsylvania, a child, for the purposes of the attractive nuisance doctrine, is defined as any unemancipated minor under the age of 18. So, how much money do you think was awarded to these two boys for climbing, for trespassing on a piece of land? climbing up on a train car, and grabbing an electrified line. You may think a million. You may think two million. You may think three million. And you're right. All of those numbers were part of the final number. The final number? 24.2 million dollars. The breakdown of this verdict, $24.2 million. And I'm finding the breakdown for you right now on here. 
was essentially uh, several million to uh, Klein, who had grabbed the line and suffered the greatest amount of injury, and then to uh, Birdwell for that. I think Birdwell got like three million total of the judgment, and Klein got the remainder, the remaining 21,000, most of it in punitive damages, uh, a good chunk of it in punitive damages on this. Uh, and it's interesting because Birdwell would actually later go on to serve in the United States military after that. Uh, so he got $3 million and did not set him for life. On that, he he actually had a, a large amount. Now they argued adverse inferences. They argued comparative negligence, which is one person is more responsible than the injury than I am. Uh, they appealed it, obviously, as to the weight of the jury verdict, as well, uh, saying that the jury verdict was somewhat unreasonable. The judges looked at it and said, no, we think that jury verdict's completely and totally reasonable. And that is why premises liability matters. You have to know your general duty of care. Things that could have stopped that verdict from being handed down. A security guard at the site. A fence around the embankment. Uh, putting warning, high voltage signs on things. All of those things could have ameliorated the harm, could have shifted it more to two 17-year-olds not receiving $24.2 million from a trial judge from Amtrak and Norfolk Southern. None of those were taken, though. So what's the takeaway? If you know someone is trespassing on your land... And there is a danger like, oh, I don't know, high-powered voltage lines. Maybe put up a warning sign in a easily visible location. Maybe put a fence up to try to stop people from trespassing. If you have an attractive nuisance, maybe don't make it so easily accessible. So th there you go. That is the premises liability. Now, as always, we turn at this point to questions from the Patreon supporters and subscribers to my Twitch channel. In case you aren't aware, and this is your first time listening, Boozy's Legal Funhouse, while a podcast available on all major podcast services, is recorded live every Monday over at twitch.tv slash boozybadger or sometimes in the Discord channel itself. And as part of that, as part of our live recording, which explains why this isn't edited at all, I invite our Patreon supporters of any level to go into the Discord server and ask questions about each week's topic that we then answer while doing it. So, our first question tonight comes from Slippery or uh, Quaxamephedida. Uh, is trespassing a strict liability offense or does it involve intent and or malice on the part of of the actor that is an interesting question i will tell you how many courts will define it first a mistake of fact is almost always a defense second it normally is strict liability uh simply because the first offense for trespassing many times uh is a summons it's a fine at most most times they don't even cite you for trespassing uh, here in Pennsylvania, we actually do something called you've been trespassed. And that is where you are told, hey, you can't be there. And a police officer or the owner will tell you, you can't be there. And now there's a record. You have been trespassed. If you go back, it is now defunct trespass on it. Uh, as a matter of fact, there is a way to make the first offense defiant trespass, and that is by giving them notice. That's what maybe, That's why when you drive through Pennsylvania a lot, you see those signs, uh, private property, no hunting, trespassers, and all that on trees along roadsides. It is putting people on notice, hey, you can't be here. This is private land. Once you have the notice, it will normally move from a summary offense to defiant trespass which is a much more serious offense. Slippery Stallion asked, What is the standard for awareness? Example, a sign exists, but it is in a language the person cannot understand or is recently stolen or missing. That's a good question as well. Uh, generally, 
You are not required to post signs in every possible language. The fact the sign exists will be enough. It may go towards their scienter on a higher level charge of trespass on it. As for liability, uh, unless a court were willing to hold that you are required to give a duty to warn in every possible language, uh, generally an English sign would would make uh, would make sense. Likewise, if the sign was recently stolen or missing and you had no knowledge of it, but you could prove you had it up recently before that and that there was no way you could have the knowledge, there's a very good chance that a court may say you have uh, fulfilled your reasonable duty to warn on it. And those are important really for trespassers more than anything. Uh, Evie has asked, if someone trespasses in a dangerous area but there aren't adequate warning signs and they get hurt, who's liable? They are, with the exception of you creating the danger, you you making the danger, or you knowing, as we discussed, uh, that somebody is likely to trespass there or is trespassing there. You have no duty to warn. A trespasser enters property at their own risk. Uh, many times. Now, that doesn't mean that you can go out and set what we call literally man traps at law, traps intended to catch and harm trespassers. Remember, you can't do that. You can't cause the harm. You can't be the reason the harm happens. Uh, but a sign for a trespass uh, is not required. Now, if it was to be, say, an attractive nuisance situation, that makes it different. Or a known or apparent trespasser situation, that makes it different. Then you would have a duty to warn them about the danger. Quack, quack, honk says, if we see someone put on a doggy shock collar, are we liable if we don't stop them? No, actually. Um... Uh, Believe it or not, the law generally does not require you to intercede and stop someone from having harm unless you otherwise have a duty to do so. That is more of a topic for a future episode regarding general's duties of care. But unless you are in a position where you already have some duty to step in and stop someone from being harmed, legally, you are not required to intercede. And as a matter of fact, sometimes if you intercede and do so in a manner that causes harm, you can then be held liable for that harm. The classic example is the rescuer example. Somebody's at sea and they are uh, drowning and you say, I'll rescue them. And you jump into the water to go save them. If you just let them drown, you wouldn't face any civil liability for that. You have no duty to rescue them. But once you have begun the rescue, you must complete it. Otherwise, you can face liability for the harm that occurs. When you hear about Good Samaritan statutes, that's what that's intended to stop most of the time, is the civil liability from somebody attempting but failing to rescue somebody or act to help someone when they otherwise would have had no requirement to. Dante has asked, how would this interact with the idea of attractive nuisance? We already fucking covered it, buddy. Uh, and I know why you're asking it, because you own a pool now. That's right. So just, just keep a fence up and keep it covered and prevent kids from accessing it. Uh, Benny states, Putting a party on notice, does that apply to something like a fan convention denying access to a person for useful reasons? I am assuming that what you are referring to is whether or not they could be held for defiant trespass, a higher level of trespass. And generally, I can only answer generally because each state is different in this regard. It is a matter of state law. I will say in Pennsylvania, if you tell someone you are not allowed on my property in written letter and say, if you come onto my property, I'm going to contact the police and proceed to the fullest extent of the law on it. And you are within your rights to do that. And they have received it. You have placed them on actual notice and it could form a charge of defiant trespass. And with that, I know it was a shorter episode this time. I do apologize. 
but I have dirty rice uh, cooking on the stove upstairs, and I'm going to go up and eat it. If you have proposed topics for future episodes of Boozy's Legal Funhouse, please feel free to let me know at boozy at lawyersandliquor.com. If you want to support us, you can always do that by going to patreon.com slash lawyersandliquor and becoming one of our monthly Patreon supporters. Get access to the Discord and all the special things we do together in there. Or if you don't want to do anything like that, if you want to say, Fat Man, you're not getting my money, that is perfectly fine as well. Then what I will ask you to do is go to whatever podcast podcast service you're listening to this on and give it a rating of five stars that's right i don't care whether you like it or not you can tell me to fuck off in the comment after you leave it just help me pimp that algorithm all the way up to the top so until next time thank you for joining me i am the boozy barrister boozy badger this has been boozy's legal funhouse you have a wonderful rest of your day